And this afternoon, we're going to do a um, continuation of what we had started this morning, or a, a building upon. And again, I've, we've talked about this uh, before, that we save this afternoon uh, to do either Proverbs, as we are going through generally, but if there's something uh, that I think would be beneficial in terms of an addition to the Sunday morning service, then we can always do that on Sunday afternoon as well. And I do a lot of uh, study and reading uh, for the morning service, and a lot of times there's things that I come across that are very good and beneficial, but there's just no way that you could put all that uh, into uh, a, a one service without being in Hebrews for the next 30 years. So uh, that's why we'll do some of these things in the afternoon. And this is dealing with this issue of perfection, of perfection. In, in what ways um, does Christ perfect his people uh, in a superior way to anything that happened under the Levitical priesthood, right? So this concept that we read this morning from Hebrews 7, verse 11, that if perfection was by the Levitical priests, obviously, as we showed, that they could not bring about the perfection of the people, and they could not uh, bring about this greater state of the people through their ministry. Only Christ can do that. And ultimately, this has reference to our full and final salvation. But it also has reference to the state of the church, in terms of the worship and the blessings and benefits enjoyed under the ministry of Christ as opposed to what they enjoyed under the ministry of the Levitical priests. We read that passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, that the ministry of death and condemnation, that it was accompanied with a type of glory, that Moses, when he went on the mountain, there was a glory that was with him because he was the primary administrator of that covenant in terms of it being communicated to the people. But the glory of Moses and the glory of that covenant is inferior to the glory of Christ and the glory of the new covenant that he ushers in. So there is a degree of perfection or a degree of superiority in terms of the people and the worship that is experienced by believers under the new covenant that was not experienced under the old covenant. They had it in shadows and types, but we have it in the fullness of those things. So what are these areas in which Christ is able to bring about perfection that was not accomplished through the Levitical priests? Okay, so that's what we're going to deal with, both in terms of the people and also in terms of the worship, in terms of the people and in terms of the worship. So let's pray, and then we will begin our study. Heavenly Father, we Lord, we do thank you for sending Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you for raising him up as high priest over the household of God. Lord, we thank you that we draw near to you and we worship you in spirit and truth through, through him. And Lord, that you might help us to better understand just the manifold riches and the blessings and bounty that you have bestowed upon your people under the ministry of Christ. And Lord, while we certainly know and understand that in the Old Testament, that their people could be saved and that there they did experience, Lord, many blessings and benefits from you. But Lord, we also see and recognize that with the coming of Christ into the world and with the ratifying and the ushering in of the new covenant, that there are things that are seen and known to a greater degree in our own situation today. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to see and understand those things so that we might see all that Christ has done for us and how, 
wonderful it is, Lord, to live under his rule, to bear his burden, which is easy and light. And Lord, uh, how it is that he's delivered us from all of our sins. So Lord, teach us today that we might better understand our salvation, that we might better understand what it is to live under Christ, that he might rule and reign in our hearts. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, so we'll look at uh, six areas, six areas here in terms of the people, and then five areas in terms of the worship. And we'll just deal with these briefly, briefly, because there's, uh, and you can look up more passages on your own, okay? So the first area of perfection that is accomplished by Christ, and we dealt with this uh, sufficiently this morning, but is in terms of righteousness, in terms of righteousness, right? The foundation of the perfection of God's people, of the of what the priesthood must do is in relationship to the righteousness of the people. This is what the high priest is appointed on behalf of men for the purpose of to take away their sins and in order to make us righteous. And Jesus Christ is the only high priest who can bring about this perfected state of righteousness in his people. This we saw was impossible to be accomplished under the Levitical priesthood because the blood of bulls and goats that they offered could never take away the sins of the people. They could not bring about their perfect state, a perfect state of righteousness, so that those people were acceptable in the sight of God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And This is the foundation of all the perfections that are realized in him. All of them flow from the righteousness that he imparts upon his people. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. There, formerly they are hostile to God, they are alienated from God because of their evil deeds, but now they've been reconciled through what? Through his fleshly body through his body that he offered up as a sacrifice in order to take away their sins and evil deeds. And the result of this ministry of Christ, the offering up of his body, is to present the people holy, blameless, and beyond reproach in the sight of God. Jesus is the only one that can do this and accomplish this on behalf of men. No other priest can and no other sacrifice, only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As we read just now in Acts chapter 13, when we took the Lord's Supper, Acts 13, 38 and 39, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Only through Christ and his priesthood can our sins be forgiven, and only through Christ and his priesthood can we be freed from the things that we could not be freed from, from the law of Moses. We cannot be freed from our sin. We cannot be freed from death, from guilt, from condemnation through the law of Moses, neither through our obedience to that law, nor through 
the worship, the priesthood, the altar, the sacrifices, none of those things could free us from the guilt and condemnation. Who is the only one that can do that? Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only He can do those things. And we remember from Romans 8, 3 to 4, that God has done what the, fle- what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What the law could not do, Christ has done. So the very foundation of everything in terms of our salvation and the blessings and all of the perfection that we have realized in us through Christ, the foundation of everything is righteousness. We must be righteous in the sight of God, and only Christ can accomplish this for us. He is the only source by which sinful men can be righteous in God's sight. The second area of perfection realized in Christ is peace, is peace. Right, reconciliation and peace with God for sinners can only come through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The Levitical priest could not secure peace with God for the people on the basis of their ministry in the temple. Because their ministry could not atone for sin, could not take away sin, therefore that ministry could not serve as the foundation for the peace of the people. Only Christ can do this. It is only through the forgiveness of our sins and our right standing before God that we then have peace with God. Only through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is peace granted to the people, to the people, not through the animal sacrifices that were associated with the old covenant. Those could not bring about peace because they could not take away sin. And as long as sin remains, there is hostility and animosity between God and man. The sin must be removed for there to be a peaceful, harmonious relationship between God and man. And since the sacrifices they offered could not take away the sin, then they could not bring about peace between God and man. But Jesus can do this because he is able to take away our sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification, which has to do with righteousness, being made righteous in the sight of God, our sin being removed, and the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. Since we have justification, the result is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is can make peace between God and sinful man because he's the only one that can take our sins. Also, peace between Jew and Gentile. This can only be accomplished through Jesus Christ. It cannot be under the law and under the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood and the law is warrior. It's what created this wall of separation, this partition between Jew and Gentile. And so long as the Levitical priesthood remained, there could not be peace and harmony between Jew and Gentile because it was a very basis of their separation and of the alienation between these two groups of men. Right, The perfect state of the church cannot be obtained while the wall of hostility stands. The Levitical priesthood and the worship of the Old Covenant, this was the wall of separation 
This was what was erected to make a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so long as the Levitical priesthood continues and is not abrogated, then that hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile cannot be done away with. And who takes that wall away? Only our Lord Jesus Christ. He has abolished it through his flesh. Ephesians chapter 2. So that there is a more perfect state of the church under the new covenant. Because in the old covenant, it was comprised almost exclusively of Jews, and the Gentiles were excluded. They were left out. But the full state or the perfect state of the church is Jew and Gentile together in one body worshiping God. Isn't that what will be in the, in the new heavens and new earth? It's not going to be one heaven for the Jews and another heaven for the Gentiles, but Jew and Gentile are going to be there together. But under the old covenant, in the worship, there was a separation of these two groups of people so that there was a hostility that was ingrained within that covenant that brought about this division between them, and that division is taken away only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14, He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having been put to death, by having put to death the enmity. So there, the enmity between Jew and Gentile, the dividing wall, is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. These are the commandments and the ordinances associated with the Levitical priesthood and with the worship of the Old Covenant. And this he has abolished and removed so that Jew and Gentile can worship God in one body, side by side. That wasn't accomplished under the Old Covenant because the Gentiles were prohibited from coming into the inner courts. Only the Jews could go there. There was the uh, place for the Gentiles, and then there was a place for the Jews, but they were not there together. Now this is done away through Jesus Christ. The third area of perfection has to do with spiritual light and knowledge of the mysteries of wisdom. Right, The wisdom of God is fully manifested and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Old Covenant, God spoke to the people in dark, in obscure, in mysterious ways, through shadows and types that were darkly prefigurements of the reality that would be accomplished through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in the New Covenant, in the state in which we are, He has come in His Son And he is the image of the invisible God. And in him, we see all of the perfections of God, all of the wisdom of God manifested in his person. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The law contains only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, right? The shadow does project truth. It gives you information. It gives you some knowledge and understanding of the person. But is seeing the shadow 
the same as looking at the person and looking in their face. No, there's a difference. There's a distinction between those two. Well, the law contained shadows of the good things to come, but it did not contain the very form of the things. It contained a shadow of the heavenly temple, a shadow of the heavenly altar, a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ, of the priesthood of Christ, but it did not contain the reality of those things. But the gospel does contain the reality, and that is known in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In verses 14 to 18. John 1, 14. says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for I existed, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received uh, grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. There, John spoke of Christ, but in John speaking of Christ, is there as much clarity and knowledge and understanding as seeing Jesus with your own eyes and hearing him speak with your, with your own ears? Right? There is a fuller knowledge and understanding in his actual coming. John accurately predicted his coming. John told the people who he was and what he would do. But then when Jesus came, now they can see it with their own eyes. They can hear it with their own ears. They're not dependent upon John's revelation. They have access to these things themselves. And in Jesus Christ, uh, he is the one explaining to us God the Father in the perfect, fullest sense. The mysteries of God are unveiled to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why in Hebrews chapter 3, he called Jesus the apostle of our confession. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the one who reveals to us the full will of God, the one who has been uniquely sent by God in order to teach us who God is, right? In a way that is not, it cannot be accomplished by any of the other prophets or the apostles, None of them can reveal God the Father to us like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because can we say of Moses, if you see Moses, you see God the Father? That cannot be said of Moses. Can that be said of Isaiah? Can that be said of Jeremiah? Now, insofar as what they spoke was the word of God, then you could learn from God. But seeing them, seeing Moses, was not seeing God the Father. But who can we say to see him is to see God the Father? Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is this full revelation of the wisdom of God. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So he is the exact representation of the nature of God. And God spoke in finality through his son and through the apostles who teach us 
who Jesus is, what he did, the words that he said, and all of his miracles, which was not written before his coming, right? It's better to have the Old Testament and the New Testament than to just have the Old Testament. It is a great blessing to have the Old Testament. And that was one of the chief blessings that God gave to the Jews. To them belong the oracles of God. But is it better to only have Isaiah? Or is it better to have Isaiah and the book of Romans? To have Jeremiah and the book of Hebrews? Well, it is far superior to be in that situation. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. This is the state of perfection that Christ has brought about for his people. Number four, liberty. Liberty. This has been obtained by the priesthood of Jesus Christ, right? Liberty is a benefit the people experience in the new covenant as opposed to the fear and bondage that they were put in under the old covenant. The old covenant was accompanied with much bondage, with much slavery, with much fear. They were under guardians and tutors. They were under these kinds of of things until the fullness of time. This is what we read earlier from Galatians chapter 4. The heir, so long as he is a child, is is treated no differently than what? Than a slave. He's under these guardians until the day of his maturity. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 5. Acts 15, verse 5. says, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. This is at the believing of the Gentiles and what was going to be expected of the Gentile believers. Namely, do they need to be circumcised and do they need to adhere to the law of Moses, the ceremonies, the Uh, regulations concerning food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body. All of those things associated with that covenant, do those things need to be kept and observed by the Gentile Christians? Then notice in verse 10, this is Peter, and he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now, what is this yoke that they were not able to bear? Well, it's what is mentioned in verse 5. The need to circumcise them and instruct them to observe all of the ordinances associated with the law of Moses. And Peter calls it a yoke that they could not bear. It was a burden that was impossible for them to bear in the old covenant. And it never produced anyone's salvation, just as we mentioned this morning. It would be a great burden to have to, every time you needed to worship God, travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, take your sacrifices with you, go and go through all of the rituals necessary in order to come there into the temple so that these sacrifices could be offered on your behalf. Right, All of the various washing rituals, all of the food rituals, all the things that were necessary for them to keep and to observe, it was a great yoke that was upon them under that old covenant. And that is part of the purpose of it, is for it to be an excessive bondage or a burden there upon the people. In contrast to that, the worship of God under the new covenant 
there is much more liberty and freedom in the people. Are we constrained to go to Jerusalem and to worship God only there? Are we constrained to go to the temple and worship God only there? Are we constrained to come to Harvest Creek and worship God only here? It doesn't matter. We can come here if we like. If we want to go out to the middle of a field and worship God, we can go to the middle of the field and worship God. They did not have that freedom and liberty. They could not just go offer sacrifices out in the middle of the field on their own. They had to go to the proper place and they had to do it the proper way. But we have the freedom to go and to worship God and to draw near to Him. And all of the aspects of our worship can be performed anywhere that we want to be at as long as we're doing it in sincerity and in truth. And this is a liberty that God has granted to us under the new covenant. Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians 3, verse 11 says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and confident access through faith in Him. We have boldness and confident access through faith in Christ. Liberty and freedom to draw near to God and to come to God in this bold way that was not so much experienced in the Old Covenant. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not become burdened by a yoke of slavery. That is in relationship to them going back to circumcision and going back to the rituals of the Old Covenant. He says, it is freedom that Christ has given you, freedom from these things. Why are you going back and submitting again to circumcision? Why are you going back and submitting to those who are wanting to bring you back under this yoke of oppression and this yoke of slavery? Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22 Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All of this because we have a great high priest Over the house of God. We have the freedom to draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And where are we drawing near to? Where do we go when we draw near to God? We go to the very throne of God, to the throne of grace, into the Holy of Holies where Jesus Christ has gone. What Jew under the old covenant ever had the freedom to go into the Holy of Holies and worship God? No one, only the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But they were forbidden from doing that. They did not have that freedom, that liberty to go there into the Holy of Holies, but we do. We have the freedom to go into the very Holy of Holies in heaven. Number five, there is in the new covenant a clearer confirmation of the blessed state of immortality and glory. We have a clearer confirmation of these things. Again, not that no one in the old covenant or in the Old Testament had a confirmation of the immortal life or the glory that awaited them in the life to come. But there is a greater confirmation of this after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Levitical priest, name me one Levitical priest 
whoever died and rose again and ascended with a glorified body into heaven to sit down at the right hand of God. There is not a single person in the Old Testament who ever died, rose again with an immortal body, and ascended into heaven in the sight of all men. Now, there were men who were translated into glory, such as Enoch and Elijah. They were translated miraculously into glory, but they did not die first and then be raised and transfer in that way. There were others in the Old Testament through the ministry of Elijah and Elisha who were raised from the dead. But were they raised with an immortal body? No. What happened to all of those that were raised? They all eventually died again. They did not raise with a glorified body and they did not ascend into heaven. But our high priest, the one that we go to in order to perform our worship before God, our high priest has died, he has been buried, He has been raised from the dead, and death no longer has any dominion over him. He has come out of the grave with a glorified, immortal, glorious body. And now, with that glorified body, he has ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he has gone as our forerunner. Is this not a great confirmation to our faith of what awaits us? Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. We shall go where Christ is. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. There it says, Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Death no longer has any mastery, any dominion over him. Again, that was never said of any of the Levitical priests. That was never said of anyone in the Old Testament, that death no longer has dominion over them, that they have a glorified, resurrected body. Who is the first fruits of those who have died and been resurrected? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live on this side of his death and resurrection. Now, these things were predicted in the Old Testament, but they had not yet been accomplished. But when they are accomplished, we have not only the prediction of those things, but we also see the reality that it has been accomplished, and it gives to us an even greater confirmation of our faith. Colossians Chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 says, He also is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the firstborn from the dead. But as the firstborn, he is, there are going to be more that will be born after him. And that is us, right? That is the believer who will follow in his footsteps. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man comes death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. 
Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Christ has been raised from the dead. That statement could not be made under the old covenant because he had not come into the world yet. Now, it predicted that he would be raised from the dead, but he had not yet taken on human flesh. He had not yet died. He had not been buried, and he had not yet been raised from the dead. But from our vantage point, all those things have happened. And we know that they've happened because they've been recorded for us in the New Testament, and that gives to us a great confirmation of these things. We have not only the promises of the Old Testament, we also have the confirmation of those promises in the New Testament as well. And that gives us this uh, great uh, confirmation of what will be ours. And then a last aspect of this perfection is joy. Joy, the joyness experienced under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Only in him can our joy be perfected. Again, this does not mean in the Old Covenant that no one had any joy. We know that they did have joy. They had joy in the Lord. But that joy that they had in the Lord did not come through the Levitical priesthood. Joy is found upon the knowledge that our sins have been forgiven. The Levitical priests could not atone for the sins of the people through their ministry, but only brought about a reminder of their sin. So they brought about fear. It brought about trepidation. It tormented their minds, their consciences, on the knowledge of their sins. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. For the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Every year in the Day of Atonement, after that day was concluded and its activities were concluded, what did all the people know would have to happen the next year? The exact same thing. Over and over and over and over again. Because it was obvious that those sacrifices could not actually take away their sins. So in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of their sins. And when there is the reminder of our sins, does that produce joy in us? Or does that produce fear in us? That produces fear. But where do we have the joy, the knowledge that all of our sins have been forgiven? Only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through his ministry, through his sacrifice, that is where our joy is found. And their joy in the Old Covenant was founded upon the promises of God. The promises of what God would do through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 8, 56, that Abraham saw his day, he saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced in the day of Christ because he knew that day of Christ would be the basis for his forgiveness of sins, and that is where ultimate joy is found. So in these ways then, the people are perfected in Jesus Christ through all of these things uh, that the Levitical priest could not produce and bring about. He is the one that brings them about in his church, because he is the better high priest. And then the second aspect is the worship. The worship of God is perfected, or it is in a greater degree of glory, 
after the coming of Christ than it was before the coming of Christ, right? The worship under the new covenant is more glorious than what existed there under the old. The first reason is because it is a more spiritual worship as opposed to more outward and physical and carnal, right? We remember in Hebrews 9, 10, Hebrews 9, 10, talks about these laws of the Old Covenant. It says, They relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. They had implications for the body, for the outward, for the physical. That is what these things were dealing with. Food, drink, various washings, regulations, for the body. There it is a more physical, a more outward, a more carnal type of worship that is taking place. In opposed to the worship of the new covenant that is more spiritual and more suited to the nature of God, of who God is. In John chapter 4, 21 and 24, this is what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman. She's bringing up the place of worship whether it should be in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. But Jesus says that the time is coming when it's not going to... You're dealing with things that relate to the Old Covenant. Things that relate with food and drink and washings and regulations for the body. Things that are more carnal, that are more physical, worldly in the worship of God that were suited for the Old Covenant, but not in the New Covenant. Now, the worship is going to be in a more spiritual way. John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and truth. A time is coming when you're not going to have to be worried about the place where you go and worship God in terms of the location, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. That is associated with a certain period of time. But now the time has come when those things are inconsequential. They don't matter. All that matters is what? That you worship God in spirit and truth. Now, does this mean that in the old covenant they weren't supposed to worship in spirit and truth? Well, of course they were to worship in spirit and truth, but they also had to worship at the proper place. And where was the proper place of worship? It was in Jerusalem. They had to uh, concern themselves with food and drink and washings and regulations for the body. But now in the new covenant, we don't have to concern ourselves with food and drink and washings and regulations for the body because the time of reformation has come and the worship is in spirit and in truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 6 to 9, talks about the greater glory associated with the new covenant as opposed to the glory of the old covenant. And he makes this distinction between the two, that there is a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. Right? That's 
self-evident. Otherwise, they're one in the same covenant if there's no distinctions between the two. So that there is an old covenant and that there's a new covenant means that there must be things that are different from the one as opposed to the other. And one of those distinctions is the glory. The glory of the new far outsurpasses the glory of the old, so much so that it is as if the old covenant has no glory at all associated with it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He says, Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how much will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So the glory of the new is so great that it is as if the old has no glory at all because it surpasses it to such a degree. How can that not have implications on the worship of God and the people of God who live under the new covenant as opposed to those who live under the old covenant? A second way that worship is perfected in the new is that it is easy and light as opposed to the burdensome yoke of the old covenant. We read from Acts 15 verse 10 earlier, where Peter says, Why are we imposing upon them a yoke of slavery that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? The old covenant was associated with many burdensome rituals, many yokes that were necessary for them to follow meticulously. And if they did not follow them meticulously, what would happen to them? God would kill them, right? They would die in those things. And opposed to this is the new covenant in which the burden and yoke of Christ is described as light and easy. There are not hundreds of burdensome rituals and regulations concerning food and drink and washings and regulations of the body concerning where we worship and how we come and what we bring and what we wear and how we wash ourselves all before we come. And all of those things, none of them are able to do anything about our sin in terms of what we eat. We don't have to worry about making sure that we buy uh, this kind of food or that kind of food, where is it processed, right? What kind of meat is mixed in here? We don't have to think about those things, right? The worship of God is much easier and lighter under the new covenant, under the ministry and the high priesthood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11. This was part of, again, the purpose of the old covenant was to keep these burdens on the people to show them the slavery of their sin and that only Christ can liberate us from these things. And when he comes, there is freedom and liberty found in him. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." an easy, light burden of Christ. A third area in which the worship is perfected is in terms of the instruction. The instructions in the new, there are clear evidences 
of the things that we know. They are not in dark shadows. They are not under a veil. But these things are clearly set before us in the new covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3 verse 1, it says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The clarity that was given to them was so great that it was as if before their very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the knowledge and the understanding of all of the mysteries of God. It was all laid out before them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, here in terms of the Lord's Supper, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, is this a dark, shadowy thing? No, it's very clear and plain. We know exactly what it represents. It's not communicated to us in shadows. It's a substance that we have a hold of, right? When we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we know it's proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This is what it is. So in this way, the ordinances associated with the new covenant, there is much more clarity. They're not in shadows. They're not in these dark, hidden, mysterious ways, but they are publicly set before us of what they are, what they mean, and we draw near in that way. A fourth area, and fifth, these two kind of go together, is the worship under the new covenant is better because who is our high priest under the new covenant? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not the high priest under the old covenant. The Levitical priests were the high priest under the old covenant, but in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is our high priest. He has actually taken on human flesh, and he has taken up the office, the role of high priest. And with Jesus Christ as our high priest, there is much greater confidence to draw near to God because we see him at the right hand of God, and he is inviting us to come near to him. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That had not happened under the old covenant. He had not come yet. He had not died. He had not risen. He had not ascended. He had not passed through the heavens. He had not sat down at the right hand of majesty on high as both fully God and fully man. But he has now. And this is the time in which we live when Jesus Christ is there serving as a mediator on our behalf. And then in relation to this, this gives us great boldness and access to the holy place to draw near to God. In the old covenant, the people were taught to stay away, that they could not draw near to God. They were kept at a distance. Even when God came down at Sinai, the people were terrified and they told Moses, we don't want to go near. 
You go up and talk to God and we'll stay here. And then you tell us what he wants us to do. So there was restrictions that were put upon them. And they were told if anyone even so much as touches the mountain, what would happen to them? They would be put to death. But that is not the case for us. We are invited to draw near to God and not to go to a mountain on earth, but to go to the very Mount Zion in heaven above where Jesus Christ is. And why do we have such boldness and such access? Because we have a better high priest. Our high priest is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is through him, through his ministry, that we are able to draw near to God. Hebrews 10, 19. And we'll finish with this. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the old, when they drew near and they came to their high priest, there was a reminder of their sins year by year. But when we draw near to our high priest, what is it a reminder to us of? That our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That there no longer remains any sins that we are forgiven. And it gives us great boldness to draw near to God and to come to him and ask for grace and mercy during our time of need. So in these ways then, Jesus perfects his people. He gives them an access to God. He makes them fit to dwell with God and gives a greater degree of glory and a greater worship among his people. Ultimately, it will be consummated in the life to come. But even in this present life, the situation in the state that we find ourselves in living under the new covenant, when Christ has actually ratified that covenant in his blood and he has taken up the office of high priest on our behalf, it is a superior state in which the church exists today as opposed to what it was under the old covenant. And for that reason, we should be very grateful, very grateful to God, especially for us because we're all a bunch of Gentiles. And if we lived back then, where would we be? We would be outside. We would be outside the camp and we would be excluded from the promises of God. But now we have been drawn near, brought in, and we have been given an access that they never had under the old covenant. And so that is great reason for us to glory in God and all of it by the grace of God. Not because he saw anything in any of us, but by his sheer grace and mercy. And that should cause us to rejoice and be grateful to God. So with that, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. And uh, Mike Morris, I'm going to ask you back there, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?